Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parlay forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Marc-Andre Cornoyer. I'm not sure if I said that right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You can just call me Mark. That's perfectly fine. Awesome. Uh, do you want to give us a brief introduction? I think it's been quite a while since we had you on Ruby Rogues. Um, sure. Well, I guess uh, most people know me or will know I've used my work before. I'm the creator of the Thin web server. Still today, I think one of the most uh, popular Ruby servers out there. I also had some other minor contributions to Ruby. One of them is not really known, but it's uh, called TinyRB, which is a, a small Ruby uh, VM that I built from scratch. And that launched me onto the world of uh, uh, programming languages and whatnot. And then I wrote a book about uh, creating your own programming language, which which book helped uh, create CoffeeScript and many other languages. Awesome. We're going to have you on today and, and talk through some things. Um, it's it's really sure. exciting. I mean, I've I've used Thin for a long time, and it's it's a really great web server. I think on my servers, I tend to go with Passengers because it's easy to set up, but. Yeah. Sure. Well, I think a lot of people also use Thin when they should not be using it. It's a non-blocking server like Node is. So Mm -hmm. it's by definition, it's not the solution to everything. So yeah, usually it's a better option to go with something else. So I'm not going to be the first to say it. (laughs) Gotcha. So uh, yeah, so I thought we'd just dig in and get your story as a developer. Sure. um, Especially with all of the interesting things that you've done. Um, and I also want to call out that you're going to be speaking at Ruby Dev Summit. So yes. uh, people can go attend that for free um, or they can get the all access pass and then they can get the recordings and stuff. And that's at rubydevsummit.com. We've got a lot of other great speakers coming too. Let's start at the very beginning. Uh, how did you get into programming? I started the fir- my first experience with a first computer. I think it was around eight or nine years old. It was in the early 1990s. And my parents won a Commodore 64 at the grocery store. I had, I had no idea why the grocery store would give out like a Commodore 64, but it did. And that uh, was very fortunate to win one. So that was my first computer we had at home. Uh, and I think it came with a few games, like uh, it was Pac-Man and uh, Lunar Lander. It's where you had to land a ship like on the moon or something, but <laughs> only two games. Um, so I got bored really fast about with those games. So I looked uh-huh. at uh, other things that I could do with the Commodore 64. And one of them, it was, it came pre-installed with, uh, I think it's called Commodore basic, but it was a special version of basic. Uh, so I started trying to program on there on, on the basic on a Commodore 64. And also 
uh, one thing to note is you could not save like on a Commodore 64 if you didn't add like the tape recorder, which we didn't have at, at the start. So I had to start again each time, start from scratch. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't really ma- uh, manage to create a program really. So what I did is I went to library and there were some books about uh, Commodore 64 programming. And they would have the full listing of games. So I would rent those books, copy the full listing of the games into the Commodore 64, and I would be able to play the games afterwards. And then I would have to do it over because I was not able to save uh, my programs. So I did that a few times. And eventually, I think I I started creating my own very, very simple programs. And I would actually start writing programs in basic on a sheet of paper in my bedroom and whatnot. And those were the first programs that I created, but it were like really basic. So I wouldn't say that's where I started programming really. Uh, it was not until a few years later that we got a Pentium 2. I think it was around 1995. Um, and this is where like the real stuff uh, started. And I, had, I remember I had saved my money and bought myself Microsoft Visual Basic 4. And it was kind of a big deal for me because I was really looking forward to programming in VB where there was, if you've ever seen the UI, it's a really drag and drop thing where you drop buttons and whatnot and timers on the page. So I would do that. That's how I would create a program. I would drag a button on the on a form. We would double click and then it would open a window where you just put your code. So the, I, would, uh, I had no idea about common line utilities and whatnot. And that's how I would code all of my, my program at the time mm-hmm. by dragging buttons and putting uh, code in there. So I did lots and lots of coding. And that's I probably add like hundreds of projects, half big project on that machine. And that's really where I learned the programming initially. That's interesting. How old were you when you got into VB? I was probably, that was five years later, maybe 14, 15 years old, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And then I upgraded a bit later on, I upgraded to VB6. I think the, that was a really great version and I uh, uh, improved my coding a lot. But I still like would do a whole sorts of spaghetti codes and deeply nested ifs and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I was not a good programmer, but I, I did lots and lots of experiments. Right. So how did you get into Ruby then? Uh, so yes, so, so after that, so obviously that was that became my my career choice to become a programmer. Early on, I knew that's what I would be doing. So I, I had lots of really high hopes about this as a career. Like I thought it was going to be fun, and oh my god, it's, everybody's going to enjoy programming. We're going <laughs> to do it all all together, holy hands. So that was my idea, my utopic idea of a, of what my job was going to be. So I did uh, went to university college and whatnot. And after that, I got my first job in 2002 doing Visual Basic for application. So it's a special version that runs inside the Microsoft Office suite. And I would code in uh, Microsoft Access Mm -hmm. in that special version of VB. Uh, It was not super fun. I also did a bit of Java and .NET. And uh, actually, it was worse than that. It was a nightmare. And people there didn't really enjoy programming. So I kind of started losing my passion while I was there and I stopped doing projects on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still read, still kept on reading some books about programming. And one of them was a book by uh, Joel Spolsky, which uh, was a very popular uh, uh, software blog writer at the time. It was a, he's, the, he's the founder of uh, Stack Overflow, I think, mm-hmm. one of the founders. 
And uh, he, he had a book which was a collection of, uh, actually the title of the book was Best Software Writings. It was published in uh, 2005. It was just articles from around the web about uh, you, that he thought would were the best software writings of 2005. And the last chapter was an extract of Why the Lucky Stiff Poignant Guide to Ruby, which was an introductory book about uh, nice. Ruby. But in a very, like if you've seen Poignant Guide, it's a really special tone and it's uh, full of carton foxes and really artsy and real different from anything you've ever seen. Chunky bacon. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I see you're, you're well aware of this, but uh, uh, if you've never seen it, this is uh, truly something you have to dig into about the history of Ruby is the uh, old story of persona of why the lucky stiff. That's that's the thing that hooked me in Ruby, first of all. And then was the syntax. I really liked the syntax, the fact that you could read it as English. But it was a combination of really of the persona of why and seeing all the things you could create and the fact that it was so different, so different that what he was doing and how Ruby looked that I was hooked. And then I started uh, practicing Ruby more, starting doing side projects again on the side because it was fun programming Ruby. And then I discovered Rails, obviously, about a year later. And then uh, because of that, uh, I created many other projects and got a job at a really cool startup in uh, Montreal. And that's where the fun started to begin for me in my career. And I uh, made lots of cool friends and uh, built lots of cool stuff and had lots of fun at that startup. That's awesome. And, you know, I I mean, I got into Ruby because I worked at a company that was using it and kind of picked it up there and did some side projects with it. It's It's kind of interesting just to see that, oh, yeah, you know, I, I kind of ran into it through this book and then decided that was the direction you wanted to head. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's funny that we all kind of run across these things in different ways. And Yeah, did you start with uh, Rails or did you start with uh, Pure Ruby initially? I started with Rails and then moved into Ruby. It was, it was funny because the saying went, at least in our users group, was I came for the Rails and stayed for the Ruby. Yeah, yeah, most of the time that, that's, the, uh, yeah, that's the thing. Yep. But I think one thing that I kind of want to tease out here a little bit was that you were reading things that were written by Joel Spolsky. And, yep. you know, a lot of people, they'd kind of get into their little camp for coding and, you know, then they just kind of stay there and they don't really look for opportunities to read or learn or grow or anything like that. And I think it's important that people go out there and take the opportunity to um, better themselves and read and see what other people are doing or thinking or studying. Oh yeah, totally and totally. And I think uh, it's oftentimes uh, I've done this myself. Is we kind of forget why we're we've done the, we started programming initially, mm -hmm. and it's I think it's most for most of us at least because it's fun. It's fun creating stuff, and I think that creating software is one of the easiest way of creating something from scratch and one of the fastest way. And that's why it's so cool. You can like sit down on your computer and a few hours later you have created something out of nothing. It's yours. You've created it. So I think that's pretty amazing. And sometimes we kind of lose a perspective on this, that how cool that is because we've been creating crappy stuff that we don't enjoy for so many years. And you kind of sink into that hole of, uh, of losing your passion. That's that's exactly what happened to me. And took me uh, it took me Ruby actually to get back on the wheels and do programming for for fun. Oh wow! So what was it about Ruby that you liked? What was it that really appealed to you? You said that it the syntax was kind of like English, but was that it, or was there something else? No, 
No, it was it was the energy in the community at the time. And I, actually, you could spot it right out of the gate with the with the, the style that why what, what he was doing, what the the way that why was. Uh, writing, but as soon as I saw the chapter, then I started reading his blog. Then I started reading what everybody was doing at the time with uh, with Rails, but not not just with Rails. You would see like um, uh, like the, all the gems, all the packages that were published at Ruby at the time. You would go look at the source, and you could feel like that that person had put some efforts into polishing the source code, into writing some tests, into like you would you could feel that this was a a work of passion and not just something that is slapped together because they add to uh, add this gem uh, working or something, right? So mm-hmm. I, I felt like everybody was putting their uh, a lot of passion everywhere and just enjoying the working with Ruby. And this is really what I was looking for at the time. I was desperate for uh, working with passionate programmers. And I, this is exactly what I found in the Ruby community at the time. So then I'm curious because Ruby's been around for quite a while since then do you feel like the community still has the same energy <laughs> that's a good question uh, i don't want to offend anyone but i don't think that there's it's there the, there's any more the same energy that it was initially but i think that's natural right and that's yeah. the sign that uh, ruby and rails as have evolved initially like everybody was questioning is ruby ready for prime time is it fast enough and those questions would drive motivation right when you're everybody's saying like oh, ruby's not good enough it, you're kind of feeling a sense of oh i'm gonna prove them wrong so everybody's like uh, uh, working twice harder to prove everybody's wrong because the you feel like ruby is is special and it's is cool and it, because you're seeing everybody else do so but now that kind of it has been proven that Rails can be used on large-scale application, that Ruby can be made fast. I think there is less of a challenge, and that's part of the reason I think it's a bit less exciting, but it's still, I think it's still a joy to work with Ruby. It's just less exciting and less, uh, you, you feel less driven to innovate and create stuff and improve stuff that is already there, at least for me. Right. So uh, I guess the next question is, and you've talked about some of this, and and I'm probably going to tease out some of the stories behind some of this, but uh, I usually ask people what contributions they've made to Ruby. What what are the things that you've done that you're most proud of? Um, well, personally, the mo- the thing, the one I'm most proud of is the uh, tiny RBs, the small Ruby implementation, uh, because f- it's a it's a full reimplementation from parser to compiler to a virtual machine that I've implemented. And that's be this the one I'm most proud of because this is not this is something that I've never thought I could be I could do it myself. Like I never thought I was uh, good enough in a sense that I would read about programming languages on forums everywhere, and I would read a post about somebody talking about virtual machines compiler, and I would say I would be blown away by their intelligence and say, "Oh my God, this is what I maybe maybe I'm gonna touch a glimpse of what it, it feels to be." Uh, like uh, good at or understanding this stuff someday, but never thought I could understand it someday. Mm-hmm. And so this project for me is kind of the culmination or the uh, proof to myself that if you put really put the work, because this this is not a this is a big project for me. It took me like two years, uh, and so if you really put the hours and you're passionate about something, I think you can accomplish almost anything. Like in code with code, I'm talking. Uh-huh. Uh, so this is my personal proof to myself that I can code anything that I want. So uh, that was a build realization for me, and. Uh, obviously, tin is a bigger as a as a bigger impact on uh, Ruby and everything is uh, been used by everybody, uh, mostly in a Ruby community. But the 
Uh, and the reason that I think it became popular is because it's so simple. So to me, it was not a big technical accomplishment. It was ju- I was just lucky of putting a few pieces together that work really well and were there at the right time. Um, but I, I think an interesting story that I can tell is that the, the I think the reason why it became so popular is because of the context at that time. So I think I can tell that uh-huh. story uh, if you want. Absolutely. Uh, I'd, love so, to, I'd love to hear it. So at that time, I mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, a lot of people were um, talking or questioning the fact that Ruby could be used on large scale application. And at that time, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, uh, the main popular server was called Mongrel. So a lot mm-hmm. of people were using that and a lot of people complained that it would crash on their load. So lots of load, it would just start seg faulting or that sort of stuff. And it would also... Uh, so the and the author of Mongrel will complain that it would crash because of the threads of Ruby. These threads were really poorly implemented in Ruby. So everybody was blaming each other. But then I realized by looking at a source code of Mongrel that uh, Mongrel was thread safe. So it would be using threads. But at the time, Rails was not thread safe. So what Mongrel would do is it would lock a giant mutex before calling into Rails and would release the mutex as soon as it exited Rails. So right, so the the threads were used for nothing at all in the Rails. So they would all those crashes we're seeing in all the major Rails application were because of nothing, because Rails was not using the threads anyway. So I thought to myself, well, I'm gonna implement a simpler, and so that's where the name came from, Tin. So it's gonna be simpler and smaller. So it's not gonna have the layer of concurrency that is the threads. So I would remove the threads, re-implement the server from scratch, and I would become uh, stronger and uh, faster and more stable servers. That was my idea. And I did lots and lots of iteration. I just started, uh, I tried re-implementing the full server from scratch in Ruby, including the parser. So this is a piece that converts the bytes that they are on the socket and converts them into so- something that the app can read, so Rails can read. Uh, but then that was a big failure. So I just took this, the same parser that Mongrel add which is written in C, it's really fast and really secure. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for the network part, the network library at the time, I discovered a library called Evit Machine, which is still around today. It's a really, really good uh, um, networking library that works exactly like Node.js. But yeah, so it's based on events, it's a non-blocking, so it's a bit of different things that, that we're used to, but it doesn't use threads and it allows some sort of concurrency, which is exactly what I was looking for. So I plugged that together and also at the time, uh, there was uh, a new library was just coming up. It was not popular at all. It was called Rack. So nowadays it's everywhere. It's but at the time, yeah. yes, yes. But at the time, the, there was even there, there was no like handler. They call it a handler, but there was no handler made for Rack and Rails. So you could not run Rails on Rack at the time because Rails was not made at all for Rack. So I wrote the first rack handler that would convert the rack uh, way of doing things into the rail way of doing things because that's what I needed. So that's the main reason why rack was not picking up initially because it would not work with rails. And it was quite difficult to try to make rails talk with the the rack way. So I built that for after a lot of work, I built that first handler and I implemented my server to be based solely on the rack specification. So it was kind of the first server to be a rack based. So I plugged the two and people started using it and didn't notice like good performance, uh, servers stopped crashing. But obviously I got a lot of help from a lot of people um, around the Ruby community, which is another reason why I kept doing Rails project, uh, Ruby projects is because people was 
everybody was really helpful and just like they would report bugs and tell you exactly how to fix it, give you mm-hmm. a detailed backtrace. I was kind of blown away about this, but all the help just and people like they even didn't care about give, getting credit. They only wanted you to improve the project, which that was a really cool uh, mentality I thought at the time and everything like this. So I kept improving Tin and kept adding features to make it faster. And uh, I was really driven by the fact that it was the fastest server and uh, they started be, being a competition at some point with Passenger and also there were some other uh, servers popping up at a time. So I was kind of uh, trying to stay the fastest mm-hmm. and that was that is what was driving me at the time. So it was a really cool experience. I really learned a lot of stuff and uh, uh, learn, um, discuss, um, met a lot of interesting people, got invited to conferences. So it was a really great time in my career and all because of that uh, of thin of that software and everybody who was involved into that project. So I'm really grateful for uh, for that project. And I'm thinking that it's not mine anymore only because it has, it was the kind of the culmination of the contribution of everybody who was involved. So um, it's kind of a community project at this point. Cool. I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, what, what were the challenges? What were the things that you needed help with with that? And what did you learn while building a web server? I mean, I think a web server for a lot of us is just software that we take for granted. Yes, yes. And the, something that I learned uh, during that time is you and that I never learned. Uh, I think I would have never learned uh, if it was not for Tin is um, it was the first time that I worked on a code that was used by lots and lots of people. So in the past, like I would work on code that was used maybe 20, like hundreds at, at max. So, you know, when you're coding for so little, so few people that is so for a code that is not used that much, you don't, the edge cases, sometimes it's safe to say, oh, this is never going to happen. So usually it's safe to say that if, if not a lot of people use your code. But if you're building a server used by millions, every time you think to yourself oh this is maybe it's not gonna happen it's gonna happen I, mean, I guarantee it so all the edge cases that you can think about are all gonna happen at some point if you're building code like a server that is used by millions and uh, eventually like hundreds of millions of people because the code is going to be executed in all sorts of way all sorts of environment and with uh, under different kinds of loads and everything so the code is going to be executed so much by so many different people that all the possible cases are going to be exercised at some point. So that's what I discovered all the times that I, uh, even sometimes I would say, oh, maybe I don't need to like uh, close this file. It was a temp file. That's closed automatically. That's what I would talk. But no, it would leak eventually in some special cases. The temp file that is used for storing the body in some cases would would leak. So I, um, that's one of the bugs that was reported by uh, some of the people at Engine Yard that helped me um, debug that part. Uh, other bugs that I forgot the cases, but they are all usually all the same thing. It's, it's when I would initially code it, I would tell myself, "Oh, I'm going to try to keep the code simple and f- and don't think about all those edge cases." But usually, those edge cases would come bite you uh, uh, a little bit later. Awesome. The other one that I, I wonder a bit about, you know, you're talking about Tiny RB and you know building your own Ruby implementation. I mean. I can think of a few others that have been out there like Rubinius and uh, JRuby and things like that. Uh, was it just kind of a learning experience that made you want to build TinyRB or was there something else there that kind of made you go, oh, well, I'm going to do this? 
Uh, at the time, there was lots of talks and excitement about uh, Rubinius and uh, Jeruby also a little bit. Like everybody was trying to make Ruby a bit faster. And it was also at a time where uh, uh, there was a lot of work being done on a VM for Ruby 1.9. It was called a YAR. That's what we have today in Ruby 2. But at the yeah. time, that was a big, big thing because Ruby 1.8, the version before that, was not running with a virtual machine, which all modern programming languages use nowadays. So it's kind of a mind-boggling that at the time uh, Ruby was the only one not using one. So that's why it was uh, Ruby 1.8 was really slow because it would um, work in a way. It was, it was missing this big missing big piece that is the virtual machine that is required for having decent performance for a dynamic language. So Python has one, had one. So uh, Ruby News of, of obviously had one. Uh, was working on one that was pretty good. And JRuby was based on JVM, which is also based on a VM and whatnot. So it was lots of work and lots of talk and excitement about that. So after uh, I was kind of uh, done with TIN, I had done like uh, uh, improved it in all the possible ways that I can think of. Then I got really passionate about programming languages and more specifically about virtual machines, trying to optimize like all the tiny bits of a virtual machine, and that's why I kind of recreated uh, uh, a Ruby virtual machine. It was mostly because, I don't know, I was just really into that, and I would read papers about um, the Lua virtual machine. So Lua is another programming language that has a, a virtual machine that is, I think it's a beautiful design, really simple, but also at the same time really efficient. So it's that's the reason why it's one of the most uh, fast scripting language out there, the Lua and Lua JIT. Also, it's another implementation, but it's because of the simplicity and the effectiveness of the design of the bytecode. And that really, uh, like open, uh, I was really passionate or uh, mind blown about that thing. And I wanted to create something as uh, exciting to me as I, what I saw in uh, by, uh, Lua bytecode and virtual machine. That's why I created TinyRB. Nice. When I was hearing about you back in the, you know, when I was newer to programming and, and you know, very, very involved in the Ruby community when we started Ruby Rogues and things like that was your books and courses. Oh, yeah. So uh, do you want to talk a minute about those and, and what's going on with that kind of a that oh, the kind business of side? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to, the business side of things? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, during those years, like about, I think it was maybe in 2011 or something like that. So after I, uh, kind of, we got laid off of the startup that I talked about earlier, uh, in Montreal. So we got laid off. This is the cycle of startups, I guess, but, uh, eventually it doesn't work out. So the, everybody is, uh, is tanked and you have to go. So another time I kind of got the startup bug where I wanted to, uh, do my own thing. Uh, so what, um, so we, one of my colleague, we, uh, quit and we, we started our own startup. It was called talker. It was a group chat application. Mm -hmm. We quickly sold it after a few months. So it, it was kind of a success, non-success where we wanted to build something, but we didn't have the uh, marketing knowledge to build it really. So that's why we had to sell it so early. Um, and so I told myself after selling that, so I had to get a job actually, actually after selling that startup because the money didn't came in re really quickly. And I, during that time that I got a job that I uh, was not super passionate about, so I told myself we failed because of marketing. I didn't know anything about marketing. So I told myself, I'm going to take a full year and learn everything that I can about marketing and then try again to build a business. 
mm-hmm. because this has been one of my goal, career goals for a really long time. So I learned everything that I could and mostly about direct sale and everything and uh, copywriting and all that stuff. And I read lots and lots of books and whatnot. So when I got back to it after a year, I quit that job and I I quit the job before I had any idea how I'm going to make money or no startup idea, no product idea and whatnot. Um, so I was there, I was looking for a way to make money quickly because I had families and kids and whatnot. And I was, uh, at the time I was looking around, uh, one of, uh, the p- people I was looking up to was Amy Hoy and Thomas Fox. Uh, mm-hmm. they had a course about, it was called JavaScript masterclass. And it was a two day, four hour each day, uh, masterclass, a live, live masterclass about the, uh, about the JavaScript, uh, JavaScript language, obviously. So people would just buy, it would like a conference, but you would go there online and it would teach you all the nice tricks about JavaScript and whatnot. So I thought that was a pretty neat idea, but also the fact that the, the price was pretty high. It was kind of 400, 500 bucks for a ticket. So I said, hey, it works for them. Maybe it's going to work on a smaller scale for me. So that uh, was my initial idea. And I said, so what can I teach quickly that's going to be as popular as I can get? So I thought I was going to teach about Rails. So that's where I created my first um, product, Owning Rails. My first class was Owning mm-hmm. Rails about uh, um, it's the, an advanced class about the Rails frameworks for people who are kind of feeling stuck in the framework and want to level up. So that was my first idea. And what I did is I am. Um, so it was not actually my first product it was I wrote the book, create your own programming language before that. And one of the ways that I've been selling that book was through affiliate sales. So and also I was lucky enough that I had some big name affiliates. So namely, uh, one of them was Peter Cooper, mm-hmm. which is that uh, owns all those newsletters. Also a few other big names, uh, affiliates that I had at the time. So what I did before launching my owning Rails course and I, is I contacted all my affiliates that I had sold the book. And I said, hey, I made a deal with them. I, what do you think about this cut? And if I give you this time, amount of money each time that you give a ticket, I'm going to uh, sell a ticket for my course. So I'm going to be announcing it on this date and whatnot about blah, 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 give all the details. And so, and Peter Cooper was, is a really, really nice guy. So he told me actually, uh, so he kind of, I was really excited. I was so convinced at the time that's going to work and I'm going to quit. I'm going to be able to make a living out of this. I was really excited, but he helped me like calm down a little bit. He told me like, you know, if you sell maybe five, seven, it's going to be pretty amazing. I think, oh, you're right. So I was expecting to sell like uh, 30 or something like that, or it was going to be super crazy. Um, so he calmed, helped me calm down a little bit, but also helped me prepare and making the launch and everything. And he, and at the time he was looking for ways, I think, to monetize his newsletter. So the timing was perfect. And so I made, I did the launch and we sold out like in uh, 24 hours, all the tickets were gone. Um, and he was really happy because he had the large cut and also all the other affiliates. So it was a big success. And that's how I launched my career in uh, doing online courses. And after that, I did another course on uh, programming languages and I did another course on Node.js and uh, whatnot. Awesome. So what are you working on now? Uh, so now I'm doing so. So one of the things I think we talked about this before we started recording, but uh-huh. one of the downsides of doing of uh, moving away from programming is uh, I kind of started got it getting bored of just teaching and I wanted to have real problems. So, and one of the, um, <laughs> I like the way you put that. I wanted to have some real problems. 
Yeah, but one thing that I like about teaching is that you're, you have to write code that is really simple. You have to strip everything that's not necessary, just keep it to the bare minimum. And I like I like those kinds of problems where you uh-huh. have to keep it as simple as sim- as possible. But like, you know, when you're if you've been teaching the same course for two years, uh, there's not a lot yet you can learn. Uh, if you've been writing the same code on and on right. uh, all the time, even if you improve it. So, so I got bored a little bit and wanted to have, uh, and, and kind of felt lost a little bit where usually people are going to say, Hey, you have lots of free time and you could just start coding on something. But sometimes when you're, you don't have ideas coming to you, you're not stimulated, right? You, you're kind of, you kind of feel stuck. So I had to do something and I, and I promised myself that I would n- never accept like contracts and whatnot. So, but I kind of uh, broke that promise to myself and accepted a contract and whatnot. And that, that uh, motivated me a lot into uh, doing other stuff and improving. And I did other projects. Like uh, one of them was the a great code club. It's, it was a collection of projects. So I did one project each month. So really different project in JavaScript. One of them was a, a virtual machine, obviously. I re-implemented from scratch a neural network. I re-implemented a 2D game, a 3D game. So we built a Raycaster, a 3D Raycaster from scratch in JavaScript that was really cool. So I had to come up and learn something new each month and produce a full-blown course at the end of each month. And people would subscribe on a monthly basis. So it was a lot of pressure, but it forced me to get back into the game, if you want, of uh-huh. uh, learning new stuff and pushing myself because I kind of was stuck during that time that I did only courses. So the Great Code Club was kind of the result of forcing myself to get back into learning new stuff, uh, really different stuff. So that was the, uh, and now what I do is I kind of, uh, I'm on the, uh, I'm doing mostly contract work, but refreshing my old line of products. So that I've been, I've just finished refreshing owning Rails to uh, Rails 5 and also uh, added a module on Action Cable. <coughs> and now I'm refreshing the whole uh, suite of uh, all my products on programming languages, namely my book, Create Your Own Programming Language. So I'm redoing all the full thing. It's going to include a, a programming language in uh, JavaScript, one in Ruby, so a template language in Ruby, uh, a programming language in Java that uh, compiles to Java bytecode, another programming language in C that has its own virtual machine and garbage collector. So if you're into that types of thing, that's going to be in the next edition. That's cool. That sounds like a ton of fun. Yes, it was. Yes. And I think that, that, that taught me also a lot about like sometimes you have to push yourself, you have to do something because it's tough when you're I think it's the same uh, situation that some people can be in if they're stuck at a job that they don't like. Right. At some point, you're just feeling stuck and you don't know how to get out of that hole of just feeling stuck and that, that cycle. And you have to push yourself into and sometimes the answer is just you push yourself into doing a, an open source project on the side or just something that is closed source. But like force yourself to learn something new and. And that's what I did. And hopefully I was able to monetize that. And but that's the whole idea of uh, if you have your own business, you have to try to find a way to monetize everything. Right. I yep. think you're, you know about this. So uh, it's the always uh, the uh, the struggle of having your own business. Yeah, I know. I know a little about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the downside. But uh, there are lots of upsides, but it's a constant struggle to always have to think about the um, profitability of everything you do. And that can be boring a little bit. So uh, having a contract can is easing my mind a little bit on that side. So I'm grateful for that. So um, 
Um, I'm thankful that I uh, did accept that contract, even though I told myself I would never do it. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you're talking about that because, uh, you know, I'm kind of in a similar situation with the podcast where uh, things kind of got to the point where the podcast kind of took over most of my time. And it was like, you know what? I, I don't spend as much time programming as I would like to. And sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit, you know, off, you know, off the basis that everybody else is in, in the programming world. And that's mainly just because people are working in it day in and day out and I'm not. And even if I'm working on some side hustle or side project here or there that involves code, it's just not quite the same. And so, yeah, I've actually been talking to some folks about picking up a contract and seeing you know, what kind of options that gives me as far as, um, you know, staying current and, you know, getting all this stuff and, and making sure that what I'm working on is, is yeah, leveling things up and, and having real problems and solving real issues in programming and making sure that, you know, then when I'm talking on the podcast and things that I'm talking about issues that people actually still run into. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a problem. Like you, you, uh, I felt that too. Like you kind of feel like you're losing your edge and whatnot. Uh, it, but sometimes uh, we feel things are moving fast. But I think it's just it's not just that. Like it's not just that there's new technologies and tools. It's just uh-huh. that, uh, like uh, I think if you you start practicing something, obviously you're gonna be less. Uh, you're gonna start deteriorating or not be as good as if you're doing it a day in and day out, right? Which is what right. you do if you have a programming job. It's just that the, the, the fact that you're not typing all the time uh, during the whole day, that's really a different job. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, besides taking on contracts, and this is just something that I'm personally interested in, you know, are there other things that you do to stay current? Well, yeah, well, the, the fact, so the, the, what the contracts allows me to do is it allows me to put aside the, 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 the fact that everything has to be, to make money. Mm-hmm. And that was the, and I realized it took me the contract to realize that, that, um, what was blocking me before is any time that I would have an idea about a project or a side project, I would ask myself, is this going to make money quickly? Because every, all the time that I add during the day, had to be put into code or anything that would produce money for my business so that I can still make a living or didn't have to do it like on the the first day or first month, but eventually. And this would uh, add to kill lots of ideas because they would, I thought they would not make money uh, fast enough. And we, when, once you remove that from the equation, I started um, like playing with other stuff. And one of the things that I've been playing with that I was looking forward to play with for years has been machine learning. And I have absolutely no idea I'm going to could potentially monetize that. But I uh, was able, so I bought my shell, myself a machine with the two GPUs to experiment with that. Mm-hmm. And I write and I spend a lot and a lot of time to learn about machine learning because it's something that is really outside of my uh, uh, the, 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 the usual things that I do in the web, right? So it's really different. It's really math focused. And I did study math a little bit, but not much. So it was a brand new world for me. So it was really exciting. And it was one of the, one of the side projects that I do on the side. But once again, I had to put it aside because I have to still refresh some of my products because I'm running a business. I want, 
I want it to be profitable and I want the profits to increase all the all, all the time. So, and that's kind of the the curse of running a business, as I talked to before, is you have to all, all your focus is drained into the business. So you have to enjoy that part. And that's, that's I think that's a big decision that a lot of people don't realize when they say, oh, I want to launch a business, quit my job and do all this. It's it takes your life and it sucks everything in. So you have to realize that and uh, and realize that you have to enjoy the process of marketing and whatnot and mm -hmm. thinking about ideas and restricting your ideas so that they are profitable and thinking about uh, profitability all the time. Um, so for me, it kind of drained a bit of my ideas of my creative juice, if you want, that I add initially. So I'm glad taking contracts allows me to get, get back a little bit on that side and experiment with uh, neural networks which is what I'm going to be talking about in the uh, the conference that you're organizing. Yeah, and, and I mean, that is just, it's cool stuff. And I think that's the direction that things are going with the neural network. So I, I was excited to accept that talk. And, and I totally, I mean, this is a lesson that I've had to learn the hard way in some cases is, you know, you have to be doing the things that make bring money into the business. And so I totally understand where you're coming from there, too. One one other thing that I, I guess I'll ask, and then we can go ahead and do some picks. But um, I have people ask frequently just about becoming an entrepreneur, as a, you know, from being a coder. Do you have any recommendations for people, as far as that goes? Okay. Uh, recommendation for okay, somebody who's so looking. To yeah, do you have advice. some advice for people who are looking to start a business as a programmer? Um. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this uh, before, but I kind of it's out of my mind these days. But yeah, I think a lot of people. Um, so what what I would say is before before you people what people I think don't realize is before you take out value, which is what asking money is about, you have to put out value, right? So this is if you've never written a blog post, an article, if you've never created an open source project, you've never helped people online or like you have no trace of you being like uh, doing uh, helping or putting money a uh, value out not money a uh, value out like this like creating an open source or creating a project yeah. there's no way you could create a business and ask for value back right so that's the whole idea of if you want to start a business and you have never done any of those things like maybe you should start smaller and start with a blog start with a small open source project and try to make that pick, uh, pick up steam before you quit everything and uh, start your business. And that would be my 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 big uh, <laughs> the, the 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 big recommendation that I would do. And sometimes it's a really tough to hear because a lot of people they just they want to quit before they have done any of this and they realize how how much work this requires. And you say, oh, I've never created and wrote any blog posts, never uh, like done any podcast or anything, right? They've never mm -hmm. done anything online and they want to quit everything and just start, uh, they expect people to throw money at you. That's not going to happen. You have to create some stuff before. You have to learn the process of creating and it's really difficult to create something from scratch and put it out there because people are going to judge you. If you've never done it before, if you've just been on the consuming side and not on the producing side, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a different world for you. You have to realize that before you quit everything. That's it's it's not a good decision to quit before. So my recommendation is definitely uh, do open source. Right, we're programmers. It's a really easy first step. And until I think you can make an open source project that is a tiny bit 
um, popular in the sense that people are going to use it and think it's useful and maybe contribute or at least contribute some bug reports. I think you should not qu think about quitting your your day job there. But you can, I think the good news is you can do all of that while keeping your day job. So, yep, absolutely. All right. So, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Ruby Dev Summit coming October 16th through 23rd, 2017. Hi, it's Chuck from devchat.tv. I've reached out to some of my friends in the Ruby community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Uncle Bob Martin, Fabio Akita, and others covering topics from clean architecture to artificial intelligence and machine learning. The talks are happening throughout the day each day, and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to rubydevsummit.com. Now, picks are just things that you want to shout out about. Uh, it can be technology. It can be TV shows or, I mean, just anything. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? That's, uh, is it about, like I uh, mentioned, my products. So I thought uh, I'm probably going to toot my horn uh, once again. Um, well, I think what, one thing I want to mention is uh, I talked about Peter Cooper before. He's, uh, he has created a whole company around newsletters. It's mm -hmm. called uh, cooperpress.com. It's a JavaScript weekly. There's Ruby weekly. A whole slew of really good newsletters. And I think if you, you have not yet subscribed to one of them, I think you should definitely should. It's still, after all those years, it still amazed me about the quality of content that he puts out there. So I think hats uh, off to Peter Cooper for doing such an amazing job after so many years. So I think uh, everybody... On a, who's listening to this should check out and subscribe to one of those that you're interested in. So um, I think the main site is at cooperpress.com. It's going to be the landing page for all the other ones. Or maybe there's one JavaScript weekly. There's a Ruby weekly there, dot com mm -hmm. that are the most interesting. Yeah, he has a bunch of them and they're excellent. So I'll definitely back you up on that. Oh, another, uh, if everybody, so I talked a little bit about neural networks. So if uh, anybody is interested in in, uh, in diving into neural networks, so it took me a lot of time into uh, learning about those. And I think one thing that is confusing about if you want to get into machine learning is what, uh, after at some point you realize you have to use a framework. Uh, so I would highly recommend any Rubyist who is listening to this, if you want to use a framework, I think you should check out Torch, which is based on the Lua programming language instead of TensorFlow. So a lot of people, because TensorFlow is backed by Google, they think it's the way to go. But for me, it was really confusing. I think TensorFlow was designed more for a scientist. I could be wrong, but to me, that was the feeling that I got. So it was really confusing in using TensorFlow. But once I started using Torch and the NN library that's in ships with it, everything started making sense. So if you're looking into that sort of things, you should definitely check out uh, Torch. I forgot the full the name of the site, but it's a, a framework for doing machine learning in Lua. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in with a few picks here. One of the picks that I have, and, and I'm just going to talk about it mainly because it's been very helpful for me in my business. Um, and the call I had right before this interview was actually the, the call for my mastermind group. So there's a group of uh, business people that I talk to every week. The group that I'm in right now is organized by Jamie Masters from eventualmillionaire.com. And uh, so I get to talk to Jamie and four or five other entrepreneurs every week. Um, you know, and this week was actually my hot seat. So I actually got to talk about my business. But 
Um, just to put it out there, if you're looking for some help in getting your business up and running or out and together, um, having a mastermind group is super, super helpful. So if you're interested at all in starting a business, then what I recommend is that you find some people who are about where you're at or maybe a little ahead of you and uh, join the mastermind group and just pull something together. That way you can share your issues, struggles, and your experience and do the same thing, you know, the other way. So where, you know, they'll give you information from their experience. Um, I can't tell you how much I've leveled up both in having a business coach and in having a mastermind group. So I will pick that. And then I've also been looking into machine learning and things like that. And uh, one of the resources that I have been using is the Coursera course by Andrew Ng, N-G. Ng, yeah, yeah. I took that one too. Yeah, it's amazing. Really good course. And so it's really good. I haven't had the time to go through it at the pace that they set. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite a ways behind at this point on the course. But it's been really, really good as far as just uh, digging in and seeing how all this stuff works. So I'll recommend that as well. And then uh, Mark is going to be giving a talk on this stuff at Ruby Dev Summit. So go get your ticket. Um, if you get an all access pass, then um, you'll be able to watch the recording later on. But either way, you know, you can come and watch it for free if you watch it live. So anyway, I'm just going to plug that as well. Sure. And uh, so just a quick detail about my talk. I, see, I think you, you mentioned a course on Coursera. I took that one too. But one thing that is blocking a lot of people about learning about machine learning is that uh, it's really math heavy. Like a lot, all uh-huh. those courses, the, even the one on Coursera, it's really lots of lots of maths and integrals and differentiated and whatnot. So you can sometimes you can feel overwhelmed. But to me, I don't think it's necessary to uh, understand all those stuff. So you can still uh, learn about n- neural networks and just know about additions, multiplication, and that sort of thing. Is that's what my talk is about? Is we're going to recreate a neural network from scratch that can uh, classify images. So we're going to feed it some um, numbers or um, uh, characters, and it's going to be able to tell which character is in the image. We're going to build that entirely from scratch with uh, uh, almost no necessary math knowledge, prior knowledge. So that's going to be what I'm going to be presenting at the Dev Summit. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, Mark. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.